Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparation. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like I'm me. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. How are you supposed to feel that exploitation is the best you can LGBTIQ get? LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. This is Amir Rahman. I'm Francesca Ramsey. I'm Gary Foley. And you're listening to The Race Card. Hey, welcome to Race Card. Um, your host Ahmed Yusuf, and I've not said that in quite a while. Uh, sorry for the long hiatus. Hopefully, we can correct that over the next few months. And before we begin, I'd like to make an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet. We pay our respects to the elders, both past, present, and future. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. And I'll be talking to Jennifer Wong, who is a comedian and is also working on a project called ABC Bookish. Talking about, obviously, books, uh, um, her love of libraries, and a lot more. So stay tuned, and apologies in advance about the audio quality. The phone line didn't sound so good in the edit, but hopefully um, you stick around for, for the interview. It's really good. Um, Jennifer talks a lot about talking about I guess seeing yourself in media and not necessarily thinking about that being a viable job and I I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had over there so yeah hope you enjoy the interview and this is Jennifer I guess talk to me about um how you got into comedy because um first and foremost you're um a comic yeah I guess you could say yes first and foremost I'm a comic and um comedy has um, allowed me to do all sorts of other things, which I guess I spend a little bit more time on now. But um, to start, I, I started comedy. Um, the first time I did comedy was 10 years ago, actually. And it was part of um, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival's um, Raw Comedy Competition, which I guess is a lot, um, is the way that a lot of Australian comedians start. And I went along to um, to do the competition at the Comedy Store in Sydney. And I hadn't been to an open mic night before in Sydney, so I didn't know really what live comedy was. I just heard about it on the radio and um, just went along to do the competition and didn't do my second gig until the year after at the same competition because I didn't know that there was a thing called open mic, which a lot of people, I think, know about now. So what was that like? Because, you know, it sounds like it was the very first time... Uh, that you've ever done something like that? Had you been practicing, I guess, writing jokes and and all that kind of stuff before? Yeah, well, um, this is probably daggy to admit, but when I was in high school, um, I used to like to do public speaking. So I I found some of my old like palm cards and stuff from before. And I think it, it turns out that back in high school, I was already writing puns and inflicting them on people at school assemblies and things like that and um so I did have some experience talking to um 
big groups of people. I went to a school with, I think, more than a 1,000 people. And so I'd, I'd done it a little bit before, like, you know, standing up and talking. But what had happened was um, before the um, the gig, which was in 2006, I'd been studying in Canberra. And it was back in the days when blogging and stuff was kind of not... You know, like it was before MySpace, it was before Facebook and all of that. And so I had a I had a blog and I used to write stuff on it, like funny stuff about the news in China and all that kind of thing. And so I just took some of the stuff I'd written from there to my first gig, not knowing that um, you're supposed to talk about particular things, like, you know, that you might think of hearing in a comedy club. So um, I just went up and I talked about how China had um, a problem with... Um, rodents, gerbils it was, and so the way to deal with it was um, they bred all these giant eagles to eat the gerbils to solve the gerbil problem, but then I wanted to know what would happen once you had all these giant eagles as your problem. So, like, not the stuff that you probably would expect to see at a stand-up thing, and I don't know, if I'd been to stand-up, maybe I wouldn't have talked so much about eagles and gerbils on my first What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to the race cards. Big up. Um, after stand-up, the first kind of proper job I had after stand-up started was um, working on um, the show Good Newsweek on Channel 10 as a writer in 2008. And it was interesting how that job came about because I'd only been doing stand-up for a little while and I hadn't worked in TV before, I hadn't worked in media before. And the reason why that opportunity came up was because in 2008 there was the writer's strike in the United States which meant that a lot of TV shows stopped. So a lot of Australian channels stopped receiving the shows that they would have expected to fill their slots with. And so Good Newsweek, which used to be on the ABC, and I'm not sure if it was on 10 before, but basically Good Newsweek came back. They wanted to have um, some new people on their writing team and they wanted to have um, some women on their writing team. There were a few women who had the chance to kind of to, to write on it for a little while. So that was my first proper writing job. I guess had before that opportunity came, did you ever think about, oh, I'm going to write on a uh, TV <laughs> show. I'm going to be a I'm gonna be a comedy writer. Had no. that ever crossed your mind? No. And, and it's the thing, it's funny, right? Because what happened was um, after doing stand-up, I started to work in media and I started to work in communications. And when I was at high school choosing the subjects for, well, choosing the course for uni, I didn't know that that was something that I could choose. So, like, I might have seen it in the UAC guide, but I never thought, oh, that's that's a thing that perhaps I would um, study so that I could learn how to do things to do with the radio and the television. Why? So, um, I grew up in suburbs in Sydney. I didn't know anyone who worked on television except for one time... The Channel 10 newsreader Ron Wilson's helicopter landed on our school oval um, because I think he lived in the area. <laughs> he just dropped by. Um, and so I think that was the only real person I knew on TV, apart from seeing... This is might be before your time. I think I'm a bit older than you. There used to be a show called Sale of the Century, which was hosted no, by... No, 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 no. I, I, I watch Sale <laughs> of the Century religiously with my sisters. Really? Uh, yeah. Tony Barber, right? You remember Tony yeah. Barber? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I remember once we were out 
in Chinatown and I saw him eating by himself and I went up to him and asked him for his autograph. So, you know, like the, the thing, people on TV and people on radio were um, not really real to me. Like I, And it's weird because um, I grew up in the Hills District in Sydney, so every time they do, um, like, you know, Sale of the Century would tell you to apply because yeah. they're looking for people or family feud or whatever and, and they'd list suburbs that I knew the names of, you know, so they filmed in Epping or they filmed in Willoughby or whatever. But I, it wasn't a thing where it was just like, oh, I understand how that works, I'm going to go and um, and have a chat to them and see if I can do some work experience or anything like that. It was just a, It was just not a thing that ever crossed my mind. What I did want to do when I was little was I wanted to do something with books because books made sense to me. You know, I could go to the library, I could see that this physical thing existed, here are the words on the page, here's the here's the person's name on the book, here's the picture of the author, this is what they look like. They put some words together and, and they made a book. So that kind of felt more mm, like the like the dream, I think, when I was younger. So, so, so working in media was was not at all what um, I set out to do. You're talking about, um, I guess, books being that physical thing that you could that you see, you could see the person, you could feel mm. the book. But what is it about the book and books in general that that drew you to it? I think um, a lot of it was um, they. I I really can't remember a time without them. So they've always been a source of comfort for me. So my parents were born in Hong Kong and I was born in Sydney and when I was little my dad's sister would send over picture books from Hong Kong um, so they were in Chinese and they'd have you know cartoons in them and stuff like that um, traditional folk tales as well as just you know stories about rabbits running in a race that kind of thing and as far as I can remember I can remember my dad sitting and reading those books to me so there was always something about them that you know, associated with, with happiness and with comfort and with security. And, and, and then it just became a habit. You know, my dad would take my brother and I to the library after school pretty much every second day so that we could borrow formal books and take them home. And um, there was there was like a... Did you do this at school where, like, um, I forgot what it's called, but, like, a, a brochure comes and then you get to choose a book and then you put your money in the envelope and then, like... Yes. The book yes, comes. What's yes. that called? I can't oh, remember what that's called. You know, I, you know, I, I, I know exactly like what was, you mean. I think it might have even been this scholastic thing, yeah. like the publisher. And so you'd get your babysitters club books from there. And, um, you know, sometimes they'd be a book fair at school. And I don't know. The library always felt like a real sanctuary to me. It was just things make sense in the library, you know. <laughs> it's like a sense of order. <laughs> There's no question that you can't try to find an answer to. And sometimes you just see things that catch your eye that you wouldn't have um, known or been exposed to if you hadn't been on the library that day and that book wasn't new in the library and hadn't popped it on the, the new book stand, you know. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> And uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal Party. Uh, this is not an easy day for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country.
the, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. But with libraries, with libraries, they've really turned themselves into um, community centres. You know, they offer, you can go to a library and watch some free comedy. You can go to the library and learn how to cross-stitch. You can go to the library and learn how to garden. Or if you're a bit older and you haven't used it before, you can learn how to use Facebook. You know, there are libraries in Melbourne. We went down to film in Melbourne for the Writers' Festival. And um, one of the libraries, Emerald Hill Library, they do afternoon classes for um, students who need some help with their homework. So they can go there and do that. And it's really nice going to libraries and just seeing all the signs up in different languages, you know, the Emerald Hill one had some signs up in um, in Russian because there's a large Russian community there. So they have Russian playgroup and story time where they sing Russian songs. There's a library up here um, in a suburb called Marrickville, which has people from all different types of language backgrounds, and um, the array of books that they've got from all the different languages is just it's 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 really cool. It's like a little um, actual time capsule of what that community needs or enjoys and I don't know I just find it a place where it's really cool no one expects to, you to part with a single dollar when you go into a library and another reason why you probably think they're great places is as you said they're great places to to find books and finding books is kind of your job right now isn't it finding new books finding new people to talk to is my job right now yes so um on bookish which is a, a which is a tiny show on ABC iView um, we go and we talk to authors and we go to people who um, have something to do with the written word, basically, and and we chat with them about their ideas, how they come up with them, why they think those ideas matter. So it's been a huge year for me, brain-wise and heart-wise, to, um, to talk to people who have basically consolidated all their thoughts and feelings and opinions into a book for the reading public and to be able to get to talk to someone right after they've put all of that thought and heart into something is um, is really quite a privilege. I used to think um, we shouldn't bother authors because, you know, they've, they've done all the work, they've written the book, what more do we want from them? You know, they've said what they wanted to say, so can't we just respect them, leave them alone, not get them to sign our books because the, their names are already on the book covers, you know, what more could we possibly want from these people? But um, I, I also think that's also because I, if you think that, then you never have to be brave enough to go up to an author and go, oh, hello, I just wanted to chat to you about your book and, you know, thank you for writing it, that kind of thing. Whereas now with work, I have to do that and... Um, it's been, it's been, it's a cliche to say, but it's been very eye-opening. I guess you, you talk about being, I feel like one of the, the hardest thing is to, and, and also the scariest thing is to ask questions to people that you admire. And I yeah. feel like doing this, doing a show like this, you're reading yeah. works of people and hopefully a lot of the time you're interviewing people you admire and writers that you admire. And I guess yeah. you, you just mentioned there about being hesitant to, to talk to writers. What's it like mm. when you do? 
Um, sometimes it's hard not to fangirl. <laughs> and um, you kind of, I mean, I think that enthusiasm is great, but you kind of can't let that overwhelm the interview because some people may not have had the opportunity yet to read the book to form their own fangirl or fanboy opinions, right? So try to do it, I guess, is just prepare a lot because it sounds it's, it's a boring answer, I know, but it's just I feel like I have to pay respect to the amount of... Um, lifetime knowledge and lifetime experience they've brought to their book and so you don't want to not be prepared right so you read everything they've written you read all the interviews they've done you read if you've got time other books that they've written apart from the one that you're talking to them about and on the day you just (laughs) try not to be too nervous and and ask the questions. My fear is always that I'm asking them something that's um, boring to them because everyone else has already asked them. Because you can imagine by the time that we talk to them, the writer might be in the middle of of an international book tour or they're travelling across the country going from writer's festival to writer's festival. You talk about those nerves. Talk to me a bit about how it feels when, when you're interviewing someone and you're feeling a bit nervous. What do you do to overcome it and, and are you still learning through that process? Um, what do you do? Well, the example that comes to mind, and this wasn't strictly for bookish, but it's kind of related to some of the other work I do as well. So earlier in the year at the Sydney Writers' Festival, there was a um, there were a couple of um, panels that were new and they were just, not just, but they. what I mean is the audience, was only it was high school students so I don't mean it's just for high school students as in high school students don't matter I mean but the 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 panels were designed only for um, a high school audience and um, the panel that I was hosting had um, Stan Grant and um, Alice Pung who um, is Melbourne based and is um, a writes young Australian young adult fiction and um, Eva Orner, who's the director of Chasing Asylum. So she's won um, an Emmy Award before for her work on um, as a documentary. And that panel um, I was very nervous about because um, Stan Grant has been a journalist for pretty much as long as I've been alive. And to pose questions to an experienced journalist um, is terrifying. You know, I have worked as a researcher, I've worked in situations where it's been, um, I've had to ask questions in order to write articles and things like that, but I would never introduce myself as a journalist because um, I don't have the rigorous news training that journalists have, so I was super nervous about that one. Um, And what I did, I guess, was think about what the audience needed that day And what the audience needed that day was um, to hear Stan and Eva and Alice say certain things about the state of Australia right now. So um, based on their books, you can imagine that some of the things we were talking about were to do with um, Australia's Indigenous history and um, the refugee situation and also... um, Australia's attitude towards refugees and Australia's treatment to refugees. 
So there were a few things that I knew I wanted um, the audience to hear. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I tried to, I guess, at the time, not think about all of Stan's years of experience, all the countries he's been to, all the people he's spoken to, the awards that he's won for his work. And instead I tried to focus on what it was that Stan had written about in his book that would um, matter and um, be relatable to the audience that day. And the way I did that was think about what we all had in common in the room that day. And what we all had in common in the room that day was we had all been 15 or 16 years old at one point. So all the kids in the audience were um, either at that age or a little bit older. And funnily enough, Stan, Eva and Alice had all spoken about being um, that age and how their experiences at that age had gone on to inform I've been in all rap this year at the awards. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love hip hop, obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call, wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and their name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. You know, working, we talked about Boogish. Um, mm. How did that come about? Yeah, it came about because um, Carmen Pratap, who's the, um, the everything um, <laughs> on Boogish, so it's the two of us who work on it, um, she was a production coordinator on the book club on ABC um, for three years. And um, the book club, um, as you know, is um, the one that's on Tuesday night at 10 o'clock with Jennifer Byrne. And um, the opportunity came up for there to be an iview spin-off, a sister show that was going to be just digital and probably aimed at um, a, a younger audience. And so um, she did some auditions and I was asked to audition and that's kind of how it came about. Um, I'd worked in a bookshop for about five years. That was my first job at the age of 16 for five years. 
and yeah, I had a lot of um, memory still of what it was like to work in a bookshop and all the ins and outs of that side of the book world as opposed to just the reading side as well. So we were able to kind of put those two things together and bring a little bit of the comedy into it as well. And um, and that's how it happened. So we've gone to Writers' Festival so far this year in Sydney, Melbourne and Byron, and we've filmed at quite a few libraries in Melbourne and Sydney and um, spoken to lots and lots of people who probably haven't been on TV that much before, which is nice because we feel like we're um, maybe introducing some writers to some viewers who they may not have come across before and um, and that discovery is a really, really important part of, um, of what we're trying to do. So um, that's, that's how it came about. I guess, what was it like... Um when you found out that you had the job? Because I can imagine in a career in the creative arts, um, whether it be comedy, radio, or whatever, there's going to be mm. lots of ups and downs, lots of what-ifs and what-could-have-beens. What, what, yeah. what was it like when you... F- I'm not going to say it's, it's your big break, but like, like it's a pretty big job, isn't it? Um, it, it is a, it's a pretty big job, and it's a, it's a job that I feel stupendously lucky to be doing like um just a combination of books and comedy and reading is just so um just so many of the things that I love in in one you know in one um in one show and working with um Carmen who's really talented and everything that yeah I just yes I I felt I was this is really bad when a person who hosts a book show doesn't have the words to articulate how they were feeling at the time. Um, but um, I was really, I was really happy. I was, um, I was surprised and I was happy. And and what you said about the creative arts not being a place where there's much, um, well, basically the creative arts aren't known for their um, stability necessarily. And I think a lot of people who work in the creative arts would say that um, perhaps that's a myth that we should get rid of so as not to deter people from working in the creative arts. But I think realistically, it's certainly the longest contract that I've had um, working in TV because it was for um, for 40 episodes altogether, um, an episode a week. And um, the, four, the shows that I'd worked on were um, much shorter contracts, you know, so maybe like, 20 episodes or something like that so you'd have a couple of months work and then you know you'd fill the next couple of months with something else before another you know thing popped up so um in that respect it's been it's been a stability that I haven't really um enjoyed for a while yeah what's that stability like um it's it allows you to kind of think um a little bit more long-term, but at the same time, you're still paddling week to week. So um, the difference this year has been that I haven't done um, the comedy festival in Melbourne, which is the first time I hadn't done it in, I think, five years since I started. So um, it's been a different way of thinking. It's, it's, it, it also means that because I'm so focused on, on reading the books and thinking about what authors are doing, I don't 
haven't really focused that much on what I'm doing comedically, um, which is not um, the worst thing in the world, to be honest. I feel like at the moment, with all the things going on in the news, I feel like it's really a good time to put my head down and get a little bit more educated about the things that are going on in the world. And to be perfectly honest, it's actually quite difficult sometimes, I find, um, to maintain a sense of humour enough to be able to make jokes about certain things that um, that we are exposed to a lot. So, for example, um, if we talk about um, Pauline Hanson, for example, um, sure, it's easy to make jokes about Pauline Hanson, but what I think about now is how helpful is it to make jokes about Pauline Hanson? You know, we made jokes about Pauline Hanson years ago and did that help anything you know did that make a couple of people laugh at the time and is that enough to do you know is it did it educate anyone did it change anyone's mind you know does it matter that these voices um are allowed to go um without criticism from you know multiple voices in society including comedy yeah, I guess I just find it hard at the moment to be funny when um, when there are lots of grim things happening. It's interesting. I was um, reading an article about these two guys that wrote a show. They're American, and I can't remember what show they worked on, but it was um, an animated show where animals did things like humans, but it's not BoJack Horseman. So it's just these two guys working on a show. And the person doing the interview asked them, um, like, what research do you do when you have to, like, look up animals that are a bit weird that you don't know that much about? And they said what they do is they go to Wikipedia and they read the first two lines of the Wikipedia entry and they don't ever read any more than the first two lines because what they discovered was that once you know too much, it's hard to make it funny. And the reason why it's hard to make it funny is because you know that about the rare animal or the exotic animal or the animal that no one talks about, but your audience hasn't read that Wikipedia and might not know that animal. So they're not going to relate. And I, that really stayed with me because I thought, well, the question I asked myself is what happens when you know too much about something? How do you make it work on stage? How do you make it funny? How do you make it relatable when you... Uh, perhaps looking at detention centres. I don't think media is necessarily a career that people sit at home with their parents talking about going, hey, mum, I think I think I want to be a research assistant on the new Channel 7 comedy. You know, your parents are more likely to... And we're generalising here, you know, perhaps your parents working TV, you know. But for most parents, they're probably going to say, well... How many research assistants for Channel 7 comedies do we know, or writers, and what's the likelihood of them earning a good enough job, earning a good enough income to have a stable job to be able to afford to, you know, have start your own family, get a home, look after kids if you have them, and um, raise those kids so they get a good education like we did for you. You know, it's not, it's not the first thing that a migrant family necessarily thinks of. And... 
I don't know how helpful it is to keep saying that if we all of a particular generation repeat that, because at the same time as these words are being said, there are people like who are making great work who just arrived in Australia 10 years ago. So like, for example, there's a book, I'm just reaching for it now because I have momentarily forgotten the author's name. So there's a book called Good Muslim Boy by Osama Sami, right? And this book is beautiful and gorgeous. And when he arrived in Australia, he had to learn English. The book's been turned into a movie. He's super funny. He's, do you know what I mean? Like, he's written, Hmm. he's a performer. It's not like it can't be done. So the more we see people who are doing things like this, maybe by the time, you know, there's a 12-year-old in 10 years' time figuring out what he wants to study in high school or uni, maybe it's like, well, of course I can do this because Osama did it. You know, Osama came here and he he didn't really learn to speak English properly until like three years until he, you know, until he, after he got here and, and then he wrote a book and it became a movie and everyone loved the movie and, you know, there's an international student called... Um, Rajit Salanadasa, who wrote Ruins, he's um, um, from Sri Lanka, Melbourne-based. We interviewed him, he'll be on Bookish soon, and um, he obviously learned English at school, but he was here studying um, electrical engineering, I think it was, took a creative writing um, course, like as part of his degree at RMIT, decided he liked writing, and then just wrote a novel. (laughs) wrote a really, really good novel and the novel's been, I think it's listed on one of Reading's bookshops book of the year um, you know, he's gone to all the festivals It might it's probably listed for a bunch of other awards that I can't remember off the top of my head but, you know, we need to be seeing all of these different people who are of colour, succeeding in the artistic field enough so that parents one day don't flinch when you say actually, um I think it, you know, I think I'd like to, um, I think I'd like to go to film and television and radio school and 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 learn how to be a, you know, TV producer or a, a film a screenwriter or something like that. I guess did did you experience something like that where your parents were like, Jennifer, are you really going to be a comedian? Do you really want to do something with books? Are you really going to become a writer or what? Uh, did did you experience something like that? Um, well, the thing with comedy is is that you can actually do it very secretively. You can you can do stand up comedy very uh, very you know like it doesn't take very long to do. You know you're only talking for five minutes at a time when you start, right? So when I first started, I told my parents that I was going out at night to do some um, public speaking because um, well you it was were true. well 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 you were doing was, public speaking. <laughs> I was speaking in public. And, um, it's, you know, if no one laughs, it actually is just public speaking. So perhaps I was not telling a word of a lie at the time. But um, I was working normal jobs while going to do gigs at night when I first started. You know, I um, was working... Um, what was I doing? I was doing media and comms and, and just doing stuff like this at night. So it wasn't really like a thing of having to choose. It wasn't like I was, um, you know, was either go and do five minutes of open mic night at night or have a real job. It was just 
it was just a theme, you know, the way that people might go bowling at night or rock climbing or, I don't know, learning how to bake bread or something like that. Um, I don't know why I listed that combination of three things, none of which I do. But um, So but you don't bake bread? I don't. I, wow. I, would, I, I would love to. I am fascinated by by bread baking, actually, but um, I have a fear of the starter. Anyway, this is a <laughs> conversation for another podcast. But um, but um, in terms of my parents, I think um, my memory of it is that at university, when I just wanted to do an arts degree because I didn't know what job I wanted to do and I knew that I was interested in English and history and, and culture and things like that, that my mother insisted that I add on um, a commerce part of it. So it was a double degree of arts commerce and not just arts because commerce is something that will end up with a job. I actually have no idea what job that would have been. but um, So that was the thing. That was the secure thing. That was the kind of, well, you know, we know that people need people who've studied commerce, so, so do that because it's safe. You know, as opposed to why don't you choose something that um, you're interested in because you've got a long working life ahead of you and it's important to um, find what you're interested in. You know, like I talk to um, I talk to taxi drivers about this all the time. Like, you know, you you get in and they ask what you do and then they'll tell you. You know, oh, my daughter's about to do the HSC. She has to choose her subjects, and and it's like she 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 wants to not work next year before she goes to uni, and it's like oh that's that's good, you know yeah like um then she can figure out what she wants to do, and they're like well yeah but she won't be working, and she and I'm like well she will be working, she just won't be she just won't be studying at uni yet, and they'll be like well then she'll lose a year, and see that kind of thinking is like you know we think that she's going to lose a year, but some employers will look at that and go, wow, this person has got a range of experience that a first-year student doesn't have because she's, she's worked and she's you know, done different things. And I don't know, I think there is a mentality, certainly in my family, of you've got to do what's secure. And um, there is a long period of insecurity when you work in the arts at the start because you're trying to find out what you're about, you know, and... When I say it like that, I think, wow, what a luxury, what a privilege to find out what you're about. And I have to say that kind of thinking isn't really helpful because you don't want people to be doing it just out of gratitude, right? Because what that does is say that society doesn't value the arts. You know, we have enough problem as it is right now with government funding and how much is cut from the arts and community services and things like that. Thanks. Uh, like, really appreciate your time, Jennifer. Um, just before we go, I guess... Mm -hmm. Uh, where can our listeners um, one find you? Um, oh. and, and when can where can they where can they go to to find uh, Bookish? Um, Bookish is on iView, so you just have to head to the ABC's iView um, page or app, and there's a new episode every Tuesday. The easiest way to access it is to click on the uh, yellow arts logo, and from there you'll find you'll find Bookish. And um, for the radio show for 702 TGIF, um, that's actually podcasted and um, I'm on there sometimes. So you can um, find that through iTunes, I think. And I'm also on Twitter, 
My um, handle is WoJennifer, that's W-O Jennifer, and um, sometimes I tweet jokes, sometimes I tweet interesting articles, and um, yeah, if you want to say hi, please say hi. Yeah, say hi to Jennifer. Thanks again, Jennifer, for coming on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.